You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. At first glance, a fossa looks like some kind of cat, monkey, or weasel. It has paws with claws like a cat, a long tail like a monkey. What can they teach us? And those populations will spring up, and so it's just a whole yin and yang, and study after study, regardless of what top predator it is, whether it's a killer whale, or a grizzly bear, lion have shown that yeah taking them out of the ecosystem is not not a good thing for them. many species are in crisis and need your help join the movement at allcreaturespod.com All Creatures Podcast. Is that an alien species we're covering this week? It's, Close. That is crazy. Close, Chris. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about this very unique species. And I just had to open with a vocalization. One of them, the purr uh, of the fossa or fusa. So we'll, or we'll talk a lot about that. There's It's one of several uniqueness about this large carnivore from... Madagascar. I this people have been begging us to do this for a while, and I think you know Thank you kind of hold. I know we, we hold back some of the the cooler ones. Yeah. You know? So you know. So we yeah, we don't want, you don't want to show all your to. cards. I learned that as a podcast host. Yeah, yeah. So we're saving zebra. Like the last podcast is is Angie. Yeah, and then I'll just drop the microphone and walk away. <laughs> walk off into sunset. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But oh, the fossa, Angie. This one. I remember working with them at the San Antonio Zoo up close, doing target training with them. Oh, cool. I did not know that. Them. Oh, yeah. And this is the one animal you would I, I would never want to touch. I would never want to see in the wild because even we'll get into their size. They're not the largest predator. No. That thing would rip me up. They were scary. They are they are serious. They are a serious. Predator. When I was reading about their nutrition and what what they eat, and it's like 
the FUSA eats what the FUSA wants to eat. Like, yes, plain yes, and simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're just so unique. And uh, just, you know, like the San Diego. So I always thought they were like a, a mix between a cat and a dog. And I didn't know. I mean, I know now. But I didn't know at the time, like, where they fit they're in. They're so unique, wise. evolutionary speaking. And normally yeah. I let you just do all the evolution. But this is one of these yeah. weeks, Chris, where I did some deep dives into taxonomy yeah, and do. evolution. Because it's yeah. just so fat. Madagascar. And we'll talk a lot about it, but most people are familiar with this island uh, being so unique. It broke off the eastern coast of southern Africa about 150 million years ago. It's about the size of Texas or France for our European listeners. Mm -hmm. It holds more than 200,000 plant and animal species found nowhere else in the world. Yep, yep. Yeah, super unique. But They're we'll and we'll touch unique. a lot on their con- it's conservation day, which I think we have in other pods when we did the lemur. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, with people arriving more than two thousand years ago, ninety percent of the original forests have been destroyed. Yeah. So they've already yeah. lost several species, and we cannot lose the fossa, which is the fossa. Mm-hmm. Really quick, the fossa is the pronunciation in the U.S. and the U.K. However, the fusa is how it's pronounced on Madagascar. And so if you for anybody who works over there doing research and conservation, all the experts, a lot of them will use the terminology FUSA. So FUSA, FASA, uh, potato, potato. Yeah, I know. Well, and for the movie Madagascar, for those that have kids or if you just like movies and, and animation. So that came out years ago and it was pretty funny because all the lemurs would scream, the FUSA are coming, the FUSA. <laughs> and I used to laugh thinking, no, it's FASA. Right. But you're you're telling me it is FUSA. Mm-hmm. It's just we pronounce it different in, in the U.S. Correct. Okay. okay. Correct. But okay. but yeah, it's it's the largest mammal mammalian carnivore on the island of Madagascar. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it has a big ecosystem role. It's found throughout the island, but unfortunately, it's really really rare. Uh, the experts believe that there's probably less than two uh, twenty five hundred two thousand five hundred. Right. And there's still a lot we don't know about them. They're really unique. And they just like, Chris, is it a cat? Is it a bear? Is it a dog? (laughs) Well, I found this quote. So San Diego Zoo, this, 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 this is perfect to describe this animal. At first glance, a fossa looks like some kind of cat, monkey, or weasel. It has paws with claws like a cat, a long tail like a monkey, and round little ears like a weasel. So it's easy to be confused. Where, Where does it fit? And we'll get there. We're going to get there in evolution where it fits in that tree. But, you know, I, and also to me, it it did look dog-like to an extent, you know. Yeah, for me, it's more of a cat, like, uh, or most like a small cougar for those of, Mm -hmm. uh, for those Mm -hmm. of us in the the United States, much smaller, but still long. And, uh, but then those ears and the nose. Yeah, it's definitely, I highly recommend Chris and I will try to describe it in more detail as we go through the podcast, but it's definitely one of these creatures you need to YouTube. Chris will put some yeah. nice videos on our show notes. Uh, obviously, don't do it if you're driving. But it's really, mm-hmm. really unique. And, and it's not found at a lot of accredited zoos uh, in the United States or even throughout the world. Uh, I know San Diego has some. So you can mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. next time you go there, you can maybe get some photos for us. Uh, or we can talk yeah. to our buddy Rick Schwartz. Yep. He gets to work with them. Uh, but that's so yep. cool that you did target training with them. That's I, I know John will be yeah. – my husband will be jealous because they're uh, such a unique oh, yeah. species. Uh, he loves the cat family or anything in that realm, mm-hmm. uh, which they're not, but they are. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, uh, we'll talk but about he, that, yeah. I, 
he's never worked with them before. And Oh, they were, it would just, yeah. Cause you know, you're doing the scale, you know, how you do target training to get weights mm-hmm. on them every day and putting the scale in there with the board on top, trying to put the meat to get them to come over and like, just it, trying to shift them all the time. And they just like, you know, even the, the noises they I make was, are super oh, Chris, unique. See, that's, yeah. You are a mind reader. I mean, I know we're seeing yeah, each yeah. other on video chat right now too, but I was yeah. just going to ask, did you hear some of those crazy, awesome noises? Not the alien noises but some of the other noises and i was like man they were just freaky you know this is freaky and they're amazing they're amazing animals they they, they just you're gonna you learn a lot of fun stuff today yes with and honestly yeah. i must say i've known about the fossil for a long time but yes Kristen, for me I've, I've seen the fossil i think it was at the national zoo i'm not sure don't quote me on that but and i remember thinking like man it's not very attractive but after studying mm-hmm. and doing researching the fossil for the past week, I'm in total total love. I think they're actually yeah. very cool, cute, large carnivores. I really yeah. do. Here's, I mean, their mixed match body, yeah. like you described, yeah, yeah, really works for them. And I just I fell in love with I think with their unique taxonomical differences and di- and yes. how they must have diverged from whatever creature they diverged from hundreds of millions of years ago in Madagascar. And it just really makes me more inspired to want to conserve them. And when you think about a a big island size of France or Texas that only has potentially between two and 3000 that, I mean, I use the enlist them as as vulnerable, but I mean, they're, if their numbers don't rebound, uh, they're going to be on their way to extinction really, really fast. And that's just, yeah, we can't let that happen. They're super cute. No, no, no. And really you important know, and, for the ecosystem yeah. and just a, just a fun, fun, large mammalian carnivore. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be an amazing podcast as we, we dive more into this. Just some things, Angie, you know, to tell the listeners, I know you and I behind the scenes have been working hard. We have some really awesome stuff coming in the next few months in this coming year. I think year three is going to be big for us. You know, we've seen phenomenal growth in the last six months with, with the COVID pandemic, you know, thank you to all of our new listeners. And then those that have been with us from the beginning. Yeah, Chris, it's, uh, it's been really fun to, to watch the growth and, um, and of course get a lot of positive responses. Both we get, we get a lot of nice, uh, notes and letters to our email account and on Facebook. We really appreciate those. And then looking through, some of the listening numbers, the statistics that we get, which Chris and I, if you know us, you know we love numbers and stats. But we have a really big listenership in in Lesotho, which is a kingdom within within South Africa. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> they just like suddenly exploded. Yeah, I don't know if it's one listener and their mom <laughs> or what, but yeah. I want to give whoever's listening from there. Thank you uh, for yeah. for sharing and enjoying our podcast. Please send us an email or yeah. like us on Facebook. I'd love to connect uh, just because yeah. it's great to know that we we feature Africa a lot, especially South Africa. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've never been to Lesotho, but I've been to other parts of mm. so, uh, South Africa um, and other parts of Central Africa in general. Mm-hmm. So. Really cool. I, I just it just it helps. I know, it helps. I know. It helps inspire me when I get up in the morning to know that, it, we're, that yeah. we're on the right path and that we're, we're the people are listening and loving. And so thank you for that. And with that being said, too, uh, we had a wonderful review on uh, iTunes, which is very helpful for mm. 
getting our podcast out there to more listeners to help educate them and want them to conserve animals. But thank you for Kyanne Hilger, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, they say it's the best podcast to listen to um, when they're driving and they learn something. So uh, this person hopes that we continue for many, many years to come. So I hope so yes. too. So thank yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kyan well, Hilger. Yeah, no. And that leads to, if people don't know, because we haven't really been pushing this too much on social media, is we were nominated again, Angie, Top 10 Science Podcast for 2019-2020. Woohoo! Us, the little podcast. Yeah, doing my ridiculous looking guess. And guess who was not nominated this year? NASA. They weren't. <laughs> Good. No offense. I'm sure it's a brilliant podcast, but. I'm sure. But we got nominated again in the, the People's Choice Podcast Awards. It's it's one of the, I guess, the biggest only podcast awards around the world. And we're in the science category once again. So voting is underway. They have like 5,000 podcast listeners. So. Uh, some of them might be listening to this one or some of our previous podcasts. And it's just, it's exciting for us because we put so much, you know, our heart and soul into this podcast. We've been working really hard and just to get some recognition that, I mean, top 10 science podcasts in the world's insane. That's insane. Yes, it's insane. It, it does. It helps us know we're, we're, we're in the right I direction. Know. And, uh, and, yeah, and regardless, yeah. you and I have fun each week doing this too. And, yeah. and the know, cool people we meet along the way, we've done some really amazing interviews this past month and I, oh, yeah. I, I hope, huh. uh, that pattern is going to continue. So yeah, we're just meeting, making a lot of awesome connections, which is key because, as we keep learning this podcast, a repeat pattern is it definitely uh, individual movements help, but as a group collectively, that's where the big change is going to be. Amen. And so staying yep, in our education network or conservation network uh, is going to be really, really helpful to help protect all animals and then even mm-hmm. all the way over to Madagascar with the with the FASA. And they need it. They need it. And then just really quick, one last thing, just a thank you to Brett who emailed us. Uh, he he wrote that his favorite animal was the Eastern Hellbender, and that's how they found the podcast. And had some good suggestions, Brett. Most of them were ocean animals. We'll, we'll get back to the ocean. We just did <laughs> yeah. a, all of it in July, but there's one on there I definitely want to do soon. So uh, hopefully we'll do that. And then Jackson from the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Mm-hmm. So he 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 listens to the podcast in the kitchen every day as they cut up diets. He also had some amazing suggestions. Yes, I so. think all of his, I was like, Chris, let's do this one. Let's do that one. Let's do this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Jackson. <laughs> yeah, we will. We will. We will. So Angie, the fossa, like I said, it's not the largest carnivore in the world, but I'm telling you, it is the most gnarly. There you go. California slang. <laughs> it is the most gnarly, but it's beautiful. It, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful mismatch of. Everything, yes. There's, (laughs) yeah, it's like, uh, it's in general has a cat like appearance, uh, with a large blunt nose and forward facing eyes, but then it has these round Mickey Mouse, if you will, ears. It reminds me more of like a a weasel. Uh, Mm -hmm. and in general, they're covered in short but thick fur that's red, brown, and colored. And juveniles have a little bit different shade to their coats. I guess there are some individuals that can be almost black in color, but that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They do have cat-like claws. Uh, they're short, curved, and they're able to retract them. However, it's a little bit different strategy than a typical feline, uh, which is mm-hmm. important for the taxonomists that 
are super geniuses that know how to put these animals into different clads and groups mm-hmm, and things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's in tail though is what really was striking to me. Yeah, much different, so much different than um, a typical felid or a, t- a cat, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion, because it's just it's well, it's really long, but it's really thick. Mm-hmm. And when we get more into physiology and behavior, we'll talk about how they actually use their tail a lot. And it's really important. That's yeah. probably why it evolved to be, I mean, a, most of its body length, like what? They can be, yeah. what, six? Yeah, so, the, bo- yeah, so the, the body length can be up to 31 inches long or 80 centimeters. The tail length is 28 inches long or 70 centimeters. So, yeah, it's as long as their body. <laughs> right. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, I know. so really, imp- yeah. really then- impressive. Yeah, and then you know the the males weigh up to nineteen pounds or almost nine kilograms. Females fifteen pounds, you know, seven kilograms. So they're not they're, they are the largest predator on Madagascar. It's Correct. just they're not they're not even leopard size. I mean they're no. You know, and I would just say it, it's it's shorter than like you said like a like an ocelot or bobcat, but maybe the same body size. You know, just right. You know, not not quite as big as like say a leopard or, or something oh like not that. even but, yeah or cougar or anything yeah. like that no 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 definitely yeah. not yeah. uh but still still impressive that's for sure and just really mm-hmm. beautiful mm-hmm. if you take a screenshot of their face and they have these golden brown amber colored eyes and and just watching them on video this week the way they move they're very agile that does remind me more of like mm. a cat uh as far mm-hmm. as they're walking and they're stalking and we'll get to their tree climbing too which they were definitely designed yeah. to spend a lot a lot yes. of time in trees so just really a unique fun knock your socks off uh yeah. predator carnivore yeah so now the next time you see him at the zoo or something you're gonna realize how lucky you are i know I go back I, I, and, and that's yeah. always been the thing is i'm a, a hoof and horn girl and so mm. i'm always all about seeing those species right at the zoo and being in awe <laughs> just eating, eating yeah i just like to watch them munch on grass like that's my zen yeah, you yeah. know when when, yeah, when yeah, your yeah. therapist or somebody says go to your happy spot i'm like okay that's me like hearing a horse or a zebra chewing mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so mm-hmm. ridiculous mm-hmm. but i just love it uh yep. but my husband obviously he's the big cat guy and loves himself carnivores that's what he prefers to work with yep. and so I mean, I'm sure he stopped in awe and was a little jealous of that zoo having him and him not getting to work with them. But uh, yeah, I don't. I, I, I now I know that's why I do this podcast. I, I have this newfound appreciation for so many species mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I before mm-hmm. I guess I I I think without knowing all the physiology, that's pro- I'm such a physiologist at heart now that now I I just have a whole new appreciation for the different yeah. strategies of hunting and eating or flying or swimming and. Mm-hmm. That's why I love this podcast. I know, I know. They're amazing. And they so when we say they're Madagascar, I mean they they used to range most of it until we'll get to it, you know, when, when humans arrived. But generally the forested regions of Madagascar and generally near the coasts is kind of where I would say that the central region is not where they range. And you know, now, like you said, Angie, 90% of the forests have degraded, so their habitat has shrunk drastically Correct. drastically so and we'll get there we'll right get and, there, and that's when you worry about fragmentation so okay maybe there's a mm-hmm. hundred up here but how do they how do they get to the ones that are down south and things like that and so yeah they they're typically found throughout madagascar but they're very rare 
very rare mm. to actually see one or for the research scientists that are trying – conservationists that are trying to study them and learn more – tagging them and learning more about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. still a beautiful miracle almost when, when they find them and are able to yeah. uh, learn more about them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean – Slipping into why care, I mean, it's easy. They're they're a predator. They're the top predator. Yeah. They are the predator in Madagascar. It's so critical for that healthy ecosystem. Absolutely. And then as a top predator, we'll talk about all their different diets, but if they are taken out or even just their reduction in general is going to let some of their uh, prey animals become overpopulated, which Mm -hmm. those prey animals... A lot of them are either herbivores or prey on even smaller smaller animals that then eat grasses and plants and fruits and things like that. And so then those populations will spring up. And so it's just a whole mm-hmm. yin and yang and study after study, regardless of what top predator it is, whether it's a killer whale or a grizzly bear uh, or a lion, have shown that yeah, taking them out of the ecosystem is not a not a good thing for a lot of the other species in that habitat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like the wolves at, in uh, Yellowstone. I mean, we always go back to that one. And then the interview I had with uh, National Geographic, Dr. Enric Sala, which I believe we're going to air before this episode or it might air after. But he talked, I got a new one for us. And that basically is sea otters. So he talks a lot about, he, he worked at Scripps Institute in La Jolla in San Diego. And he talked about how when sea otters are removed from the ecosystem, sea urchins bloom like crazy mm-hmm. and they eat all the kelp. And so then the kelp forests go away and all the animals that depended on that are gone. And you just have a ton of, of sea urchins everywhere. Nothing keeping the sea urchins in check where sea otters used to be like one of the major checks for them. So again, taking out these animals, these top predators or, or key species, you start to see the food webs break down. So that's a fascinating interview. That one was, woo, that was a great one we just did too. Yeah. And so Angie, you know, being the faucet is the top predator. I, I did go and and I think the, the biggest thing for me this week is how endangered they really are. I know they list them as vulnerable, you know, a downward trend. I mean, They used to be endangered is, though. Yeah. And just looking at the destruction of Madagascar, I mean, it's just, it's just continuing. So, so I looked up, I I found a really interesting paper that was published last year, the effects of habitat alteration and disturbance by humans and exotic species on fossa. The dog, our favorite. Yeah. I know. I know. Madagascar's deciduous forest. So this was Merson and others that, that published this in Fauna and Flora International. So, we, we did already cover, so they, and they talk a little bit about it in the beginning of the paper, how the forest, like you mentioned, 90% degraded. We talked a lot about that in episode 128, Red Rough Lemur. If you haven't heard it, go. The lemurs are amazing. But that has just drastically reduced, uh, you know, animal populations there. So they talk about how the fossa, as that apex predator, is so important in keeping not only lemurs in check, but small mammals, other small mammals, reptiles, and birds. Male fossas, and I don't want to get ahead to, to if you have this data or not, but they said male fossas have a range, home range of up to 50 square kilometers. Mm-hmm. That's that's insane for, this isn't, 
a, a major big lion. Right. This is a smaller yeah. predator. He can travel. This isn't, mm-hmm. you know, Leo the lion. And 50 kilometers squared is huge. That's a huge home range. So obviously they need lots of lots of land. And so not only is habitat loss, but there's also bushmeat hunting, retaliatory killing. Now, mainly for chickens, which is interesting, because that has to do a little bit with, which you're going to talk about, the, their scent glands. There's a myth out there that they, they come and just destroy chicken coops and stuff, and they don't. But they're blamed for it, so they're killed for that. And then we're going to talk about exotic species. So you the mean study was invasive species. Well, they call them exotic they in do? the paper, but yeah, oh, invasive. Okay, yeah, I, I would say you're right, invasive. That's better for us. Like that. That's kind of what we've talked about for the last two and a half years. But exotic, quote unquote, not invasive yeah, not species. from where. Yeah, Madagascar. Yeah. So that was the, the the first objective was to look effects on human and these invasive species. Then wanted to look at you know how the landscape changing landscapes affected them uh, over over time. The interesting thing about this paper, and again, this is why we do research, and you know always keep keep repeating it to make sure this is true, that they they're actually doing okay with habitat disturbance right now. That's it's good not news. having a major. Mm-hmm. Major drastic effect on fossa okay. per se. In the long run, it does of because in their conclusions they talk about with reduced lemurs, reduced other birds, Prey. reptiles. The yeah, the fossa has nothing to eat, so then they they are in trouble. Where the big impact right now is free ranging cats and dogs. Yes. That is having a major impact on fossa. Yeah. And that is the long-term decline. Yeah. Well, Chris, and that leads to this really crazy fact that I learned from one of the foremost FASA, or as he pronounces them, FUSA experts, Dr. Luke Dollar, who's been in and out of Madagascar studying the FUSA for over 20 years. And he's a highly accredited scientist, um, I think professor. He also uh, works with National Geographic uh, to help promote Madagascar conservation especially with the, uh, with the FUSA. It's like a really cool guy. He's got tons of you, YouTube videos out there trying to promote uh, FUSA, FASA education and conservation. And he is part of a project that was trying to figure out what to do with the feral dog population in Madagascar mm-hmm. because a lot of the dogs and cats in Madagascar are, are not pets. They are, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily chased out by villagers because they will bark and, they're tolerated by villagers, but then a lot of them, but they're not necessarily fed, so they're more feral. And then they have to travel into mm-hmm. the into the forest to look for food, and that happens to then take away prey from the mm-hmm. fusa, and of course potentially could prey on fusa depending on the size of of the animal. Mm-hmm. He stated that this is Dr. Luke Dollar that one dog, and there's a lot of them there eats up to one kilogram every few days. So he said Hmm. per dog, a kilogram of these super unique, super endangered species are disappearing Mm -hmm. every few days. And to me, Chris, that visual just made my bone shiver. I did not like that. I mean, I'm, I'm a hundred percent a dog person. I love my pet yes, dog, yeah. Uh, yeah, but cats. yeah, they're not out hunting. They feed, you know, they eat kibble, dog chow. I don't know yeah. some fancy pet food brand. I don't. But 
this is a totally different. So Dr. Luke Dollar and National Geographic and uh, several other, the uh, the Duke Lemur Center are working mm-hmm. on uh, sterilizing these feral dogs. So yeah, good. That's what's that's spa- going through my head. Yeah, spaying like, and neutering them, like that, yeah. and then so they don't kill yeah. them or hurt them or anything. They just want to stop yeah. them from reproducing. At as we all know, cats mm-hmm. and do. I mean, we have a yeah, huge problem in the United States and many other countries as far as unwanted. Mm-hmm. Pets from people not spaying pets. and neutering their pets. So, yeah. anyway, so I, uh, I I have to give a big shout out to Dr. Luke Dollar. I do not know him. I would love to talk to him in more detail, as he is the expert and he is just really, he's just an amazing conservation hero for the FASA or FUSA, and he's been fighting yeah. for them for twenty years. And so, definitely, he's the expert, and he says FUSA, so we should yeah. we should probably say FUSA. I say FUSA, FUSA, FASA. But, the, but he is he. He's actually the second author on this paper, too, by the way. So I looked it up. I'm Luke telling you, he, he's the man. He is. He's definitely the right. man. I don't know if he's ever been We're called reach that out before. He may, he may not appreciate yeah. that. I don't know. <laughs> we should we should reach out to him, see if we can get him on, get him on the pod. Yeah, be awesome. because it That'd really... Be and that's one of the reoccurring themes that Chris and I keep learning as we do this podcast and interview these experts is that, you know, there's really not a one silver bullet shot to mm-hmm. protect the FUSA. Or the lemur, or the red rough lemur, for that matter. Uh, it takes a lot of different angles and attempts as far as protecting their habitat, educating the local people to not fear them or do any retaliation kills, to not eat them for bushmeat. But then mm. it also takes protecting them from zoonotic diseases, from feral dogs, and from being eaten yeah. by them. And rabies. All oh. Rabies is a problem. Exactly. Yeah. So there's yeah. many, many angles, but luckily there's these brilliant scientists and conservationist like Dr. Luke Dollar and his team, and obviously National Graphic appreciates him as a brilliant scientist uh, trying to fight for these guys. And that's what gives me hope. And um, towards the end of the podcast, I'm going to talk about potential ways that you can help in Madagascar, uh, because I know I was really inspired this week after learning about uh, learning about uh, FASAs and just wanting to help them. And they need help. One article that really struck me, and we've talked about this in the past couple months, is that people do appreciate Madagascar for its crazy hotspot of diversity, and ecotourism has been a huge boon to Madagascar uh, as far Mm -hmm. as, and they do a lot of great ecotourism there. Of course, do your research if you ever go. But unfortunately, with COVID-19, the world came to a screeching halt, and it's tough on the local that depend, whether it's different lodges and the people that work for the lodges or tour operators or uh, national park guards and things like that, they depend, they depend being their paycheck being paid pretty much by ecotourism. And so mm-hmm. because of that, it's, it's tough over there right now. And a lot of the researchers like Dr. Dollar, I'm not sure if he's there or not, I don't want to speak for him, but the uh, the woman that was being interviewed in the article that I read, she hasn't been able to be over there in, in like six months and is very worried about what's happening because the villagers depend on her for some of their income. And mm-hmm. I mean, not it's not their fault, but if they get hungry enough, they're going to go into the forest and yeah. look for push meat and get things animals. like that. And so yeah. it's just another, or they're going to be more upset if, one of the animals eats their crops or things like that, or eats their chickens. Mm-hmm. So COVID-19, besides all of its worldwide devastation, um, it, it's not it's not helping uh, a lot of wildlife. No. Although, 
you see these wildlife sightings of kangaroos bouncing down the highway mm. in Sydney. And yes, without right. people moving around as much, uh, wildlife is getting maybe a little bit more freedom back. But in the same instance, in a lot of areas, without the ecotourism, the animals it's are in big trouble. Hurting. And so yeah, it's hurting. And so I have some hopeful suggestions when Madagascar opens back up of ways that we can get our butts there. Not only to yes. not only to volunteer, but to potentially help drive ecotourism and get things back up mm-hmm. and running as quickly as possible. Definitely on the bucket list, like definitely. Oh my god, Chris! Yes, Ugh. yeah. Top five areas in the world sure. I need to go to. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you know something I forgot to mention was there are other predators on Madagascar. I mean, there's the Faniloka, which is the striped civet. Cool. There's the nar- narrow striped mongoose. And then they have now crocodiles there. I saw that. I was like, okay, <laughs> so I'll go swimming in the rivers in Madagascar. But there are other predators because I was interested, like the fusa. Mm-hmm. I think we just call them fusa. We're going back and forth. I know. Awesome People fusa. are listening are probably like, ah. Um, okay. Fusa. We're going to, I vote. I like fusa. fusa. I think it's, it's fun to okay. say. Okay. Okay. We're going to say fusa. For Halfway the the through the podcast. podcast, Chris and I have made a decision. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, there yeah. are other predators, but they're smaller. They're much smaller than uh, than the, the FUSA. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Now, looking at evolution, this was Angie dorked out too because it's so interesting. And when just looking at the family, so they, like I said, I went back, are they a cat? Are they a dog? I would I would have thought they were Felidae. I, they originally yeah. were mm-hmm. classified as Felidae. Then they were moved to the family of Viviridae, Viviridae mm-hmm. which is civets and genets, which we'll get to one of those. And then finally, they were assigned to the group of Yulpluridae, which they call them the Malagasy Mal- 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 carnivores. So there's about 10 species in there that I'll talk about here in a second. And weren't they, though... Potentially thought to be part of the Herpestidae family, uh, the mongoose. Yeah. Yeah. Weasels and mongoose yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So in the, but there are, it's interesting because, you know, to break down their taxonomy, the orders carnivore, carnivoria, right? Carnivores. Suborder. So this is where it gets a little confusing. Suborder is Filiformia. Mm-hmm. So cat-like. Mm-hmm. So you have your cats, you have your mongoose, your vervridaes, ver- which mm-hmm. the and the binturong, right? Is that I'm saying that right? 
Yeah, I see your face. No, it's it's <laughs> like we gotta do it. It's like bitter wrong. Say it, but yeah, yeah, but we gotta do that. Yes, one. People and are obviously we probably one. need to learn how to pronounce it. But yes, that's yeah, we will. I think we that's will. one of Rick Short's favorites as well. Is it okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it's a, our we'll buddy from San Diego, yeah. And then who else is in Filiformia? This little question for you. So we had the cats, the civets, the I know this because mongoose. I studied this week because I was so fascinated. <laughs> and then when we get to repro, we're going to have to okay. uh, turn our PG, G-rated listeners probably down because uh, hyena day, the hyena. Yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. Okay, which have a very, re- very unique external genitalia, uh, some features mm-hmm. for both the male and female. So yeah, like just yeah. weird stuff going on. So weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So- yeah. Okay. So that's the suborder. Then you get to Eupleridae, which is the family and the 10 known species. So there's two subfamilies. It, it doesn't really matter. But within the 10 species, you have the fossa. Then you had the giant fossa, which is interesting. So it was about two times the size of today's fossa, went extinct, and nobody knows why. It just. Went extinct. Huh. And nobody knows How why. long ago? Did. Don't even know that. Okay. Wow. I'm thinking, I'm thinking humans. I mean, us to be. Because the other largest animal class, biggest ever was found here recently. You got to remember this one. My favorite. This is like my, my favorite dorky fact that I learned in this podcast. That Remember it displaced the moa? Oh, the bird. Oh, yeah, the elephant bird. Yeah, love it. Yeah, the elephant bird. And went extinct in around 1100 AD because of humans. Sure, yeah, when they came over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think um, yeah, I think that the giant fossa had some some issues with that. So, anyways, very interesting. So you had the fossa, giant fossa, the Mal- Malagasy civet, the phalanook, then you have these just endemic to Madagascar, Mongoose. Mm-hmm. So the ring-tailed mongoose, the broad-striped mongoose, the brown-tailed mongoose, and a few others. So they're just specifically predators on Madagascar. So all of this began, Angie. This was this I remember that you know, going back to the lemur episode, I was so excited about these facts. That the lemurs came over to Madagascar on these raft vegetation about 40 to 57 million years ago, around that time. And I, and I go back to the movie Madagascar because the lemurs showed up to this tropical, I don't know how tropical it is, but this paradise because there was no predators Sure. at the time. It was totally sterile, no competition for food. I could just see him having a lemur party <laughs> for millions of years. Lemurs, are, like, lemurs are definitely animals at party. Like, yes, like a fusa, yes. not so much. But lemurs, no. those guys party. Yeah, yeah. So it was like for millions of years, yeah. they, they had this total paradise. Yeah. Or what? in my mind, sure, you know, who sure. knows? There might have been something there. Who knows? But I'm just in my mind for 20 million years, lemurs are partying on Madagascar, having a great time. <laughs> totally. All right. So then the Fusa's ancestor arrived again on a raft vegetation, they believe, about 24 million years ago. And I think the party was over. <laughs> <laughs> so that was. I I'm laughing just because the way it is. You're so good. You could write kid books or something, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's but cute. it's yeah. like I I have this vision of all of them partying, having a great time, and then this 
oh hi welcome and it oh, yeah him, yeah know? exactly so this ancestor led to the family of Euplaridae. And so now you have the 10 different species. So that's it. That's their, their evolutionary history. It was, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. And they're, but they, interesting. they've really evolved for Madagascar and for, to be yeah. the top predator and to be unique as far as the way, I mean, they're agile on land, they're agile on trees. And the FUSA has these retractable claws, but they're only semi-retractable, so they can extend them, but not really bring them all the way in like your your domestic cat can. But they also have really flexible ankles that allow them to climb up and down trees head first mm-hmm. and will help them jump from tree to tree. So they're very, very agile and can spend a lot of time in trees. Their long tail that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast yeah also helps them balance as they're going from tree to tree looking for prey, basically. Come on. This is a, okay. Like I said, when I used to work with them, you'd look at them and like, yeah, you'll tear me up. I didn't know. I didn't know this until really this, this podcast that I knew they could kind of climb, but not climb and jump from branch to branch and chase down lemurs like nobody's business. Oh, yeah, they're, they're tough. They're, they're an ambush predator. But sure. We'll get there. But mm-hmm. like those poor lemurs. I know. Like, we love lemurs. The party's so over. Cute. Party is over. Yeah. And Chris, I don't know if you saw this in San Antonio, but there's reports of fusas that live under human care. Younger ones have been known to actually swing upside down uh, by their hind feet from knotted ropes. Like just with their oh, feet wow. holding on and these flexible ankles. Yeah, I didn't see that. So yeah, they're really they're really well suited for uh, for for this arboreal activity and hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course on the ground they do well and hunting prey that's on the ground. So we didn't mention in the description too, which is I think really important for the visual description, is that they also have whiskers, uh, which are really long. And they're often even mm-hmm. longer than their head, which will help them feed. Whiskers, are, researchers keep finding it more and more how sensitive they are. In fact, um, mm-hmm. in the horse world, in the equine world, um, I don't do any competitions anymore at this point. But a lot of really progressive um, uh, riders and researchers in Europe are suggesting that um, people don't shave horse whiskers because horses – the domestic horse yeah. has whiskers too that grow. And typically mm-hmm. when you're going into a show pen to make them look cleaner and prettier, you shave off because yeah. they have like their whiskers aren't uniform. They're, they're like all like all no, over, you all know, over, yeah. like my yeah, husband, yeah. when he doesn't shave for a long time. And so <laughs> bless his heart. But the point remains is that they're really important sensory units. And so mm-hmm. they help even horses navigate their area around their face and potentially, you know, potentially help them know where something is or where, you know, if this is good grass and in an animal like the FUSA that hunts both at day and during the night, we'll talk a lot about that and behavior, uh, the whiskers or the vibrace as they're also pronounced mm-hmm. are really, really crucial and they're super darling in the FUSA. So AJ, I forgot to mention their, their scientific name cause we're talking physiology and, and it, the scientific name of the FUSA is, Cryptoprocta ferrix. Now, the crypto means hidden. Okay. Procta is an anatomically part of the body. I'm, I'm thinking of if young kids are listening to this, uh, of the rear end. 
So you can look it up yourself if you want <laughs> crypto procta, what procta means in Greek, but uh, it's hidden end part of the animal because you're going to get to it, but they have those glands there, right? Mm -hmm. They're super stinky. Yes. They're very stinky. Well, <laughs> stinky it. if you're a human, stinky. probably delicious, yeah. sweet sauce perfume <laughs> if you're a fellow yeah. Fusa. You know what that makes me think of? I don't know why, but I go back to beavers and they have the vanilla That's castor right. beans, right? Like it's the, they use it for vanilla flavoring their, their anal glands. <laughs> yes. You may like... have had beaver anal gland on your <laughs> cupcake and not even known it. And it was uh, delicious. Is, so who cares? <laughs> no, I know. I know. So uh, the FUSA can live up to 20 years under human care. We don't know in the wild. Um, like Angie said, the, you know, they're really adapted to hunt at night, but I think, you know, Angie will get into their behavior, but I think they hunt like day and night, right? I mean, yes, Chris. And I have a new word of the day that I'm probably not going to pronounce oh. right. Uh, okay. They were always thought to be more nocturnal, but as a couple of researchers, probably Dr. Dollar and his team have been able to spend more time with them, although they're still secretive, new research has shown that they will hunt during the day sometimes. And that basically, mm -hmm. <laughs> I love the summary, that the, the FUSA may nap during the day or it may hunt during the day. It may nap at nighttime or it may hunt at nighttime. It just depends on its mood. Which that made me okay. giggle. And that that was that made yeah. that reminded me of my domestic house cats, right? They they do what they want to yeah. do and it's not always predictable. But this behavior, Chris, of being active during the day and at nighttime kind of randomly, if you will, is actually called cath morality or metaternality, metaternality, new word of the day. Uh, and that wow, just, that's a big one, yeah. And in science, that just means an organism that has sporadic, irregular intervals of activity during the day or the night to acquire food. So, because we usually talk about them being either nocturnal or diurnal or uh, crepuscular, uh, active at dusk mm -hmm. and dawn. So, New word, cath morality or metternality. Okay, okay. Yeah, unique. They do, and they, unique. As we, yeah, we opened the podcast with, they, they're weird, and I love them. They are weird. And their diet, like Angie said, it's pretty much whatever they feel like. I mean, birds, pigs, rodents, hedgehog, like this Tenerix that live there. Tenrex. Uh, wild pigs, Tenrex, there you go. And, of course, lemurs are their favorite, which is about 50% of their diet. And, you know, they're lemurs, but... You know, to catch a lemur, it says lemurs are so fast and maneuverable, but the FUSA is much quicker. Yeah. Well, they're, they've they evolved yeah. to be amazing hunters. They have a good sight, sense of yeah. sight, smell, and hearing, uh, which are obviously critical if you're going to be a hunter and an ambush predator in trees, for goodness mm -hmm. sakes. Uh, mm -hmm. And what I found interesting is that they're typically solitary, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to breeding and, uh, and whatnot, but... A 2009 study showed that they have been observed doing cooperative hunting, where three males were hunting a really big lemur species called the sifaka, if I'm saying that right, mm -hmm. for up to like over a half an hour, basically. And then once they cooperated in hunting together, they shared the prey, which mm -hmm. they think that because this is such a big lemur, uh, that's probably why they needed the cooperative hunting. But typically... They are not found or found solitary. They're like cat-like that they only come together for mating. And so researchers were 
scratching their heads on this one. And it's not something they see all the time. Like, of course, in Wild Dogs, we talk about they do a ton of cooperative hunting and they still blow my mind. Your interview with Dr. Greg mm-hmm. Rasmussen, still one of the best interviews ever uh, about Wild Dogs I and their behaviors. One. Oh, I love that But one. I think it goes to yeah. show, too, that we're still learning a lot about them and that although we like to just say, oh, they're nocturnal and, oh, they're solitary, uh, the more studies we do and the more uh, attention we pay to them, we're learning about unique behaviors that that are new in 2009. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's why all all of you young kids out there go go on Madagascar and study these guys because there's still a lot. I mean, so much to learn. Like when I was going through the literature, it's like, well, we don't know this and we don't know that. So there's still a lot that can be discovered about these super unique uh, carnivores. And um, but because they are nocturnal, some of the times they they are they can be harder to study. And as Chris mentioned, they move a lot. Um, often 16 miles. Uh, 26 kilometers in a day. It just depends on where the food sources are and they might travel more as food becomes more scarce. Uh, so it can be it can be a challenge to study them, but luckily all these awesome researchers like Dr. Luke Dollar are figuring out tactics to help learn more and protect them because that's the whole key about researching their behavior and why I'm so fascinated about behavior is the more we learn, when they hunt, how they hunt, when they're mm-hmm. active, when they're mm-hmm. sleeping, how often are they in trees, how often are they on the ground, that can help promote conservation efforts of how much land do they need. Because at this right. point, let's be honest and we got to be real, it's not going to be a free-for-all with land, especially on an island that is only a certain yeah. size and has a lot of people that need a lot of resources from that island. They're going to need yeah. to survive on probably minimal amounts of land. So it is important to know what happens if they are in a smaller home range? What happens when they are fragmented from other fooses during the breed season and breeding season? And so obviously you and I are scientists. And so we're more, the more research, the better, right? The problem right, is just right. obviously funding um, and accessibility. So. Oh yeah. As usual. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> as usual, yeah. yeah. Especially in conservation. Uh, but, but they do know how to help find each other during the breeding season and also mark their own territory. So they don't run into each other. Cause they usually don't want to do that. It's not usually aggressive when they do run into each other too much. They can, they know who's top dog, top cat, top, top dog, top cat, cat, top mongoose, top, <laughs> yeah, top <Fusa. laughs> weasel. Yeah, and yeah. so, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll typically back down. And to communicate with one another, they, as you mentioned, they have scent glands, these stinky scent glands where they mark rocks, trees, anywhere and everywhere they can find, uh, rubbing either their chest or their tail or anal area where these uh, um, scent glands or sacs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know how they find each other too when it's time to breed. And as far as other communication, we opened with uh, some of the unique uh, sounds. Yes. Yes. Uh, that they make, but they include purring, a threatening call, um, gaffs, uh, mews, if you will, not, not cat-like, mm. but almost cat-like, uh, that a lot of these sighs and just, I don't even, how do you describe what we opened with? Like alien-like sounds. <laughs> yes, so, just to sum it up. If I'm doing sound for movies, I'm gonna go get <laughs> totally sounds, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely for the next like Star Wars or something. Um, mm. But they're not an extremely vocal creature, uh, probably because but they're an ambush predator, so they're not trying to let everybody know where they're at. A lot mm. of these sounds are actually made made during courtship and or breeding. So before we get into courtship and breeding, which is always one of my favorite parts, I do 
want to talk about their anatomy of their genitalia. So if there are small children listening or something, you might want to fast forward this part. I, I of course, will always use anatomically correct terms uh, and super fascinating, but uh, yeah, it might not be for the, the, the G-rated portion of our, our, of our audience. Yeah. But in general, right, right. for the male, he does have very peculiar uh, external, external genitalia. Um, in fact, he has a really long penis and the baculum, which is the bone inside the penis, which dogs have and cat-like species have. In fact, it's so long it actually can reach between his four legs, his front legs. Um, oh, wow. Prior, prior, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, pri- prior <laughs> to breeding. So, okay. um, and it's very thick. And then about halfway down the um, the shaft, it, there's actually a spines. Um, although the tip is okay, not spiny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that happened. That's what... That's what- Yep, they, that's what lions, right? Like you always seem that the female gets angry because it hurts. Well, well, they, right, yeah, yeah, and they do a copulatory yeah. tie, so we'll talk about that yeah, too. Yeah, um, yeah. And so they have that, but even more fascinating because we we know this about the the, the cat like species that they have this um, kind of this mm-hmm. this spike on the, some spikes on their penis or whatever. Uh, but for the female, Chris, this is fascinating. This is why I went down the whole hyena uh, taxonomical yeah. relationships because young female fusas have pseudo penises. So pseudo means fake mm-hmm. penis. We know what a penis is. And they basically experience what's called masculinization of yeah. the females when they're younger. And very few species do this. The hyena is one of them. So I highly recommend that's one of our all-time favorite episodes too. Really early on, like what episode 12 oh, or yeah. 20 or something like that. Talk- hyena? Yeah, hyenas. Talking all about the think, hyena yeah, right. and they're just one other really awesomely unique carnivore. Holy macaroni. Um, but in the FUSA, this experience when they are like teenagers or whatever, as they're growing up, they have what's called transient masculinization. So before they reach sexual maturity, uh, the female fossa will develop um, a spiny clitori that actually mimics the male genitalia. Uh, And they think that this uh, helps protect females from young males trying to hit on them, if you will. Uh, But they're not sure. Because as they actually grow older, um, so after they're like about two years old, when they start to reach more sexual maturity, this anatomical feature goes away for the most part. Um, but what struck me as super interesting and why we need more like physiologists like ourselves to work with these conservationists is that at this point, they don't think that the female's hormones, when they're like one to two years old, they don't, they didn't really find high levels of testosterone. In them, okay. which that's, that seems shocking because in the hyena, yeah. that's what happened. That's the testosterone is very elevated, and that's what helps drive mm-hmm. uh, the females to develop sign, kind of sign, kind of these these male sexual characteristics. But at mm-hmm. this point, mm-hmm. the FUSA and li- the literature is very limited, but they're not sure what drives it, and then of course what stops it when they hit, you know, what I guess maybe estrogen comes on board. I don't know, but what stops it? So. It's really, really interesting from an evolutionary point of view. I mean, I love the more I do this podcast, I'm like, why? Like, why is this why? a yeah. good tactic? Why? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they they think that it maybe stopped them being harassed, the the teenage uh, female fusos from being harassed by males. But there's no there's no 
experiment to prove that. That's just a you know right, a hypothesis, right. but a very fascinating one as far as uh, as far as uh, the fusa goes. Super unique, crazy anatomy. Uh, yeah, crazy anatomy. But when the female finally does reach maturity around two to three years of age. And is ready to breed. Um, she can be kind of choosy, which I always I appreciate. I was very selective. It took mm. me. I had to kiss a lot of toes mm. before I found my husband, John. So <laughs> yes, good yes. thing. All you young ladies, yes, be yes. very, very picky out there. Be, be like a fusa. Um, yep. And so what will happen is male aggression will increase because males kind of have to fight for the female and um, show off their strength. And they'll do calls and posturing. And they they, you know, they, they might fight each other, but it's not, it's not, they're not super uh, aggressive with one another, but yeah, the female will be up in the trees, hanging out, watching the boys bat at each other. Um, and then she'll decide who she likes best based on who wins and who seems to be great. And so once a female Fusa decides she likes this male because he's strong, she will signify that she is ready and selected him by lifting up her tail and her hindquarters, and then moving her external genitalia in and out, kind of what we see in horses, it's called winking, uh, to basically tell the male, okay, here I am. And they will breed. And this is one of the most impressive, in my opinion, and amazing facts out of any breeding that we've talked about on this podcast. Are, is your seatbelt on, Chris? Okay. All right, let me put it on. Let me put it on. All right. <laughs> so the first fact is they often will copulate or breed up in trees. So there's that. What? Okay, hold on, hold on. What? So that's oh, that's <laughs> not even the that's. I mean, that's a little bit <laughs> interesting, but no, no, no. How? Okay, okay. Just hold. I'm just, just, just. So we'll, okay. We're gonna okay, talk okay. about this for a second. But they then experience the copulatory tie due to the shape of the male genitalia yeah. and the female and how they fit together and they tie. So there's a lock in place. So the period of copulation lasts up to three hours. Three hours? In a tree. <laughs> Most, in a tree. Don't fall. Please don't I fall. I know. Oh, it's one of the most, uh, I don't think that's very romantic in my opinion. I mean, I guess I'm an old no. fashioned girl, but yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, so crazy. bless the female Fusa's heart as well because she is polyandrous, which means she actually breeds with lots of males. <laughs> yeah, okay. usually more than one. So for uh, oh, during yeah. the breeding season, uh, one to two yeah. to three. So she's doing that acrobatic act for a while. So when we talk about okay. how good climbers are, they are, how strong, how mm. agile. It's just a visual I can't get out of my head. Uh, and it's very, very impressive. Uh, that I would have never. It, okay. Yeah, I, I know that these the, guys the, the are so guys and girls are so unique and so impressive. And like I said, I got a lot of giggles to myself learning about this stuff, but, uh, but no, but it's really, really cool and um, really important that of course they have trees. And of course, from a conservation point, all jokes aside is that it's really important for them to find one another and a ma and a female to pick between you know many males and then to breed with a couple different males uh, for genetic diversity and things like that uh, and so and to have trees available for some of their mating rituals and uh it's and the more we know about them the more we can help protect them 
And with that being said, researchers do know that the breeding or mating will occur in about September, October. And then young, so the, I don't know if they're cubs or kits. I I didn't get that, but the the baby fusas um, are born in den around December, January, after only a three-month gestation period. So That's short, mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. But they're tiny when they're born. They'll, uh, she'll have about two to four little ones that only weigh 100 grams. And they're super altricial. They're toothless and blind, but they do have a little fur. Uh, and, and they'll stay very close to their mom, uh, and the female will lactate for about four to five months or so, but the young fusas will stay with its mom until it's anywhere from one and a half to two years old. So, uh, and then they're, then they're considered, you know, mostly an adult, but with them being a carnivore species and a specialized arboreal hunter, as we mentioned, it's important that they stay with mom to learn these skill sets of how to uh, how to hunt and where to hunt and when to hunt. So compared to a lot of cats, like the domestic cat that we're familiar with and things like that, they have a a much much longer a life cycle or generation interval, and so they're not going to be able to rebound as quickly, even with conservation efforts that are ongoing. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's the the battle is just to to save whatever force are left there. You know, it's just oh god, that's fascinating repro. Though. I like, thought that, you would like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it's just but you get something so unique. You just you know in the trees. How, okay, and I don't know. I didn't. I, I didn't so. find a study that says it's a hundred percent in the trees, but it. it I know, I but know. it can happen. They, but she they she breed in the trees. Yeah, well, and I like it that she yeah. kind of sits up on the trees, looking down at the males fighting too. I don't know why. I just that, <laughs> that, that I was <laughs> it's just like you know, looking at her claws. Yeah, kind of like, like oh, hmm, you know, which one face, of you? Hmm, and it's one? not even like which one of you do I like the best. It's like which one of you do I like like first, second, and then third. And then you know, she like places them. <laughs> yeah, so funny. It's a lot of inappropriate jokes. But the male, but All yeah, right. oh. <laughs> But I also forgot to mention the male. Interestingly enough, after they copulate, he'll hang out with her for about an hour or so. Okay. So and I don't research. Yeah, they don't necessarily yeah. know why. Um, maybe to make sure that yeah. another male doesn't breed her right away, or maybe he is a hopeless yeah. romantic that she just, you know, she just tosses him to the side and then He's gets out. the next one. I don't know. Yeah. But what? Well, I mean, yeah, they want genetic diversity. Correct. So, Correct. You know. Well, and, and and that you know, like you you were saying earlier. So we know there's 2,500 in the wild left, roughly. And the largest pocket that they, they estimate is about 400 Fusa. So heavily fragmented across Madagascar. So she's, yeah, it's like, you know, Bob, Rob, and Todd or something. You know, she, the same three every year. Oh, you guys are back. You yeah. <laughs> well, they did mention that she'll often go to the same tree. Like that's her branch. That's her tree. This is my yeah. tree to scope out these these. Fusa boys, <laughs> these Fusa right, right, right. So right, there's a, but right. that, but but once again, if that tree's cut down, does does that then screw up her her reproduction yeah. or her the courtship behavior of these guys? Yeah. So there's a lot of un, unanswered questions still. Yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. That's why we got to get Dr. Luke on. So yeah, like we said, you know, conservation vulnerable. They just dealing with a lot. Like we said, rabies, losing habitat, which affects their food sources. The lemurs are in trouble too. So, what organizations? I know you mentioned there wasn't a FUSA one out there, but yeah. So the big, the big ones, of course, are going to be like National Geographic, World Wildlife Fund, uh, the Duke Lemur Center. Um, Actually, Doctor Luke. 
sorry, Luke and Duke. Dr. Luke Dollar, he does a lot of work with the Luke with the Duke Lemur Center. Duke. Which yeah. we highlighted, okay. of course, when we covered red left red rough lemurs. Uh, mm-hmm. and so that's a great one because of course, if they're gonna protect the habitat for the lemurs, it's gonna protect the uh the fusas as well, um, right. as kind of trickle up effect. But in general, uh, so you can check out those organizations. On Crystal puts some on the show notes. But I really wanted to actually focus this week on Madagascar and its conservation efforts in general, and how our listeners, or Chris and I, mm-hmm. could potentially get involved. Because I don't know about you, Chris, but with this pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of cons, horrific cons. Um, unthinkable. Mm. So far, I've been blessed that my family hasn't been, you know, immediately affected uh, by losing a loved one. But we've, my family and I have been affected in several other ways from job losses to just all sorts of things. But Mm-hmm. The positive note for me personally of the COVID-19 crisis has been some internal inflections and reflections of like what is important and who yeah. is important and what do I really need in life. Uh, and so and talking about that with my close friends and family and that our community is really important, uh, where you live, where you, how you interact uh, and your local food source and your local environment and just in general wanting to be more not only of the local scene but of how I can how I can make a difference how I can right, right. impact the world and it's and I'm not saying if you're a CEO of a big business you should quit your job and go volunteer in Madagascar but if you're maybe taking a gap year because your college isn't offering in-person learning, and that's really Classes, important yeah. because you're like in nursing school or something like that, uh, there's you, it might be a good time for reflection to go see what's going on in the world when Madagascar opens up. So on our show notes and maybe in, through Instagram the next week or two, we're gonna we're gonna sh- um, celebrate some of these volunteer opportunities in Madagascar. And the first one I want to highlight is called Volunteer World, which can be found at www.volunteerworld.com. And they have a ton of projects in Madagascar where you can go and learn and help for either a short period of time, like just staycation type uh, volunteer mm-hmm. vacation, or for a lot longer if you have more time or more interest. And the other one is uh, Pod Volunteer, which kind of related to podcast for me, so I like that. Mm-hmm, uh, but that's mm-hmm. at www.podvolunteer.org, and they have a lot of conservation projects in Madagascar as well. And so, her, hopefully, when everything gets lifted and we can travel back to Madagascar, or basically internationally again, uh, if you're looking for something a little bit out of the box yet helpful, uh, just to kind of see what's going on with not only lemurs, but of course the FUSA and just the people that live in Madagascar that live a lot differently than myself in North America. uh, And um, of course, a lot of our listeners in Canada and Europe to just to be a part of Madagascar uh, and to try to help save it before it's too late. Uh, Check out those organizations, be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, share this podcast have a debate with your roommate if you're stuck at home about is it a FUSA or a yeah. FASA, uh, yeah, which one go. do you like better? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, share some some cool facts about this amazing cat-like uh, carnivore and that's in Madagascar. It's in need. And um, I just uh, really think we should help save it. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. And a shout out to our Aussie listeners too. We haven't forgotten you either. You know, we always go back. We're, we're definitely going back to Australia oh, soon. Oh but, yeah. I love uh, it there. There's a few thousand down there that, that love us. So yeah, that's my conservation tip of the week. That was amazing, Angie. I'll just uh, leave it at that because, you know, whatever we can do, it is definitely an ecological hotspot that needs our help. I mean, that's why so many conservation people are are rushing to Madagascar because well, and I get a lot of uh, it's in such mm-hmm. dire. I get a lot of students that trouble. like love animals, and they may not be going into animal behavior or ecology. Mm-hmm. Some of the courses I teach, but they are really interested in in building their resume, maybe getting a job at a zoo, maybe getting a job at Fish and Wildlife, maybe getting a job as a conservation scientist. And I always tell them, like, take do if you have a summer off or even take a semester off, if you can, you know, wait tables or save your money somehow just to go experience some real life getting your hands dirty conservation techniques and it doesn't have to be for one of the big five of animals in Africa just being around the locals understanding how international policies and politics work understanding what it's like to have boots on the ground understanding how it's hard to trek through a jungle checking um, animal uh, camera traps and things like that just learning 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 especially a lot of the younger students that I work with yeah. how how mind opening it will be and that's interestingly enough to, to thank dr luke dollar who i don't know personally I, I wish i did but he he actually went to go study uh lemurs and then was oh, he yeah. was he was tracking this one for a long long time the story goes and then it got gobbled up by a fusa <laughs> and he was like what is that my yeah but he's oh like gosh, whoa yes. and then he he, he yeah. dug into the research and there was like nothing uh, 20 years ago on them. And he, so he made that one individual, that one experience he had has definitely positively improved the lives of thousands of FUSAs and helped protect right. them. And he's still fighting for them to this day. So those are the experiences awesome. as much as like, I'm always like volunteer local and still do that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, or share things mm-hmm. on social media from your couch. Like there's so many ways to help. And obviously in this pandemic, you cannot travel abroad right now and go no. on a, uh, I'm not recommending that. Do not do that. Um, no. but Save your pennies, man. So when things open up, maybe you can. And uh, and and a lot of these volunteer opportunities are very short lived. They're not. It's not like you have to like move for a year or anything like that. Um, so, anyways, uh, but I, I do recommend that to students, and some take me up on it. And a lot of them just do it. They'll maybe go to a different state, or they'll maybe go to Canada or Mexico. Right. You know, they not, won't necessarily go super exotic. And you don't have to do that. These opportunities, uh, the two websites of Volunteer World and uh, Pod Volunteer that uh, we talked about earlier are it's all over. It's not just Madagascar. Yeah. I just saw the projects in Madagascar and fell in love. So, so leave it at that, Angie, uh, amazing species. Like, wow. You know, as we gear up for, you know, we're not quite year three, we're, as we're wrapping up year two of the second year of us doing this podcast, but you know, it's, it's starting to build momentum going into, you know, third year and, uh, some exciting stuff coming and it's just another amazing animal, like amazing animal. Great job. Great job. And Chris, I know I can speak for both of us, um, uh, in saying that throughout the two and a half years of doing this podcast, learning, loving, conserving these animals, and then getting to know conservation heroes that are both just our public fans in general, but then of course, yeah. really big conservation scientists alike, that yeah. we are making strides uh, and I just want to keep doing that for a long time 
And the more... Oh, yeah. We got to keep fighting this good fight for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, stay tuned. We'll be back with uh, a new species coming soon. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.